0: Well, good morning, man. I'm so glad that you're here today. And those over in the Life Center, thank you for joining us for worship today as well. Uh, Today we're beginning a brand new summer series called Authentic, and the subtitle for that series is this, how to know that your faith is real. How to know your faith is real. Have you ever doubted your salvation? I have. Have you ever wondered if Jesus is real or if it's just a story that somebody made up a long time ago? I have. Have you ever longed for a relationship with God that is authentic? I have. There's a book in the Bible that deals with all of that and more, and it is the book of 1 John. If you want to take your Bibles, go towards the end of the New Testament, and you'll find the book of 1 John. First John deals with all of those issues that we probably all have wrestled with at some time or another. And those issues and so many more we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks through the summer as we work our way through this very important book. So today, beginning through uh, the end of August, we're going to kind of dig our way through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But before we dig into the book, I want to take some time and introduce the book to you. You see, the more you know about something, the more meaningful it will become. You've probably found that to be true, haven't you? The more, the more you know about something, just the more meaningful it is to you. Uh, for example, this week I placed a bouquet of artificial yellow roses on my mom and dad's grave. And anybody who passed that after that day probably would look at them and think, well, those look nice, and not really think that much about them. What they really would not know or would not realize is that yellow roses... Or my mom's favorite flower. And these particular yellow roses were used in my daughter's wedding a few months ago. And so when I placed those yellow roses on their grave, it really meant something. See, the more you know about something, the more meaningful it becomes. And that's true for the Bible as well. The more you know about this book, the more meaningful it will become. The more you dig into this book the more alive the story becomes the more you know about the book of first john the more you'll understand what's in the book of first john so let me spend a few minutes just to introduce the book to you before we read our text today and introduce the book to you for the entire series first of all i encourage you to take some notes on this because we're going to work our way through the book of first john and if you're here every sunday through the summer then you're going to have a good commentary on the book of first john so if you didn't bring a notebook, maybe bring one next week, but if you, even if you don't have a notebook, maybe you've got something you can jot some notes down on, and I want to introduce, first of all, the book to you, and then we'll dig into the book and the first four verses of chapter one. So let me just tell you three things about the book that are, that are important for you to know and understand as we kind of launch our way into this, into this book. First of, all, first of all, let's talk about the author. The author is John, the son of Zebedee. Now, the reason that is important is because uh, John had a brother. His name was James. They were followers of Jesus Christ. If you want to put down a reference, Mark 1, 19 through 20. Mark 1, 19 through 20. John and his brother James were one of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. They also had a nickname. Does anybody know what the nickname? their nickname was? Sons of Thunder. Uh, John and James were probably somebody kind of hot-tempered, we kind of just say what they thought, and when we start going through the book of First John and a little bit later in, in other chapters, you're going to see some of that come out. John speaks with great passion on certain issues, and you'll see that in the book. So the author is John, the son of, De- of Zebedee. He's also, one of the, also known as the Apostle John, one of the first followers of Jesus, as I alluded to. He was one of the first apostles. That will be significant later in the message. He is also the author of five books total in the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. John wrote five of those books. Now, let me tell you what what they are. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, wrote all of those books. In fact, John wrote more books of the New Testament than any other writer, except for one person, and what's his name? Paul, very good, we got a great class here, I hope over in the Life Center you're answering those questions as well. Now the unique thing about this book, this letter, is that even though it's named after him, 1 John, first letter John wrote, even though it's named after him, John's name never appears anywhere in the letter. Unlike most New Testament letters, John doesn't tell us who the author is. Most of the New Testament letters do let us know who the author is. But the book of Hebrews is one of those letters that do not tell us the author. And then the other four books that do not tell us the author are books that John wrote. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, none of those mention the author. But from the earliest church fathers, the most unanimous opinion was that it was the writer, the Apostle John. We don't have time to get into that, but, but let's just assume for now that it was the, the, the Apostle John was the author. Now this is an important point I'm about to give Make sure you write this down. John wrote this letter more than likely from Ephesus, which is a tie-in to what we're doing on Sunday nights. He wrote this probably while he lived in Ephesus. And he wrote the letter around 90 to 100 A.D. Somewhere around A.D. to A.D. 90 to 100. So that means that he wrote this letter about 60 to 70 years after Jesus. That will be a very significant thing in just a few moments as we go through this message. It's very possible, maybe even likely, that John was the last living apostle as he wrote this letter. You might want to write that one down. Very possible, maybe even likely, that John was the last living apostle as he wrote this letter. So that's the author. Let me tell you about the recipients of the letter. Kind of like the author, the recipients of this letter are not mentioned either. We do not know exactly who this letter was written to or where they lived. And the fact that that the audience is not mentioned, that their location is not mentioned, would lead most scholars to believe that this is what we would call a circular letter. Now, if you've been here on Sunday nights, you know what a circular le- letter is. A circular letter is a letter that was sent to Christians in various places for them to read. They would read it, and then they'd pass it on to somebody else. They'd pass it on to another church and to another church, and that's why it's called a circular letter. But here's the question. What caused him to write it? We don't know who he wrote it to. We don't know exactly where they were living. But what caused John to write this letter? He did not wake up one day and thought, you know what? I think I'm going to write First John. Now, there was a reason behind him writing this letter. There was there was something that actually occurred. There was some kind of a situation that prompted him to write. Now, let me tell you what it was. About A.D. 100, around A.D. 100, by then, certain things had almost inevitably happened in the church. The Christians were, by this time, second and third generation Christians. Now, remember that. They were... By this time, by A.D. 100, 60 to 70 years after Jesus, the Christians now were were second and sometimes even third-generation Christians. You know why that's important? The thrill of the first days of Christianity had begun to wane. Those second- and third-generation Christians were less committed than their fathers had been and their forefathers. Those second- and third-generation Christians were more prone to be misled than their fathers or their forefathers. And so there was a, a falling away from the faith, at least for some of them. Not all of them, certainly not all of them. But, but there, began to be, there began to be a falling away from the faith on some of the, for some of these second and third generation Christians. Now let me show you this in the text, just to see what I'm talking about. Chapter 2, just run to First John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John 2.19, here's what it says. John says, they went out from us. Talking about fellow believers who were once part of the church. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John was writing about some people who, who left the congregation, who left the faith, who had fallen away. From the faith of God. Alright? And one of the main reasons for this falling away is, a, is the fact that false teaching arose in the church ranks. Again, let me ask you a question and you can answer it out loud in, over in the Life Center. This, this letter was written about how many years after Jesus? 60 to 70 years after Jesus. And so as the thrill of following Jesus began to wane... Something else began to occur, and as, as that began to fall off, then then also there began to arise false teachers in the church, and and the false teachers be, began to introduce false doctrine into the church. And, and their goal was not so much listen to this. Their goal was not so much to destroy the Christian faith as it was to improve the Christian faith, at least in their mind. In their mind, Christianity needed to catch up. Christianity needed to blend in better with society. Christianity needed to, needed to change a little bit and kind of get with the times. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And so when that day, the pressure began to be for the church to change its doctrine, for the church to, to kind of blend in, for the church to kind of become more tolerant of other views. And all of a sudden... False teachers began to arise within the church, not trying to destroy the church, but trying to improve it, again, at least in their mind. One of the most dangerous heresies that the church had to face during this time was a heresy and a false doctrine called Gnosticism. Let me give you the the spelling of that. G-N-O-S-T, write this down, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Now, just hang with me. This is some technical stuff, but it's going to make so much more sense to you when we read the first few verses of this text, if you'll hang with me through this part. The central teaching of this agnosticism, the central teaching of this false doctrine, was that all matter is evil and only spirit is good. Now, I want you to say that with me. I want to make sure you're with me. Over the Life Center, I want you to say it out loud All matter is evil, only spirit is good. Now, some of you said it, but some of you didn't. So let's try it again. Let's say it out loud. All matter is only... That's the basic doctrine of Gnosticism. There's a lot of other things we can tell you about Gnosticism, but that's the the basic foundational doctrine of Gnosticism. All matter is evil, only spirit is good. Now, that unbiblical doctrine, unbiblical belief led to three to three errors it led to many more errors but we've only got time to talk about three that unbiblical belief led to three major errors and here's the first error that kind of came out of Gnosticism your body is your body matter or is your body spirit the body is matter. Your, your body is matter your body is matter so therefore, the Gnostic said, man's body is matter, therefore it is evil. God is spirit, God is good. All right, God is spirit, God is good, right? So it sounds, and that's the way false teaching is. Part of it sounds good. Part of it sounds right. But now let's carry it a little further. You know what salvation is for the Gnostic? Salvation was the escape from your body. Salvation was not through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation was the escape from your body. Because your body is evil. And so salvation is is the escape from your body. And it is achieved not by Christ. It is achieved not by faith in Christ. It is achieved by special knowledge. You have to be enlightened. Enlightened. You have to have this special knowledge. Not everybody applies. Not everybody can get this. Not everybody can understand this. You have to have a special knowledge in order to attain this special salvation, which is the escape of the body uh, or the spirit from the body. Now, uh, we could talk a lot about that, but let me just fast forward to help you understand why this really became such a heresy in the church. Because the body is considered to be what? The body is considered to be... Matter, and matter is evil. What about Jesus? Gnosticism said it is impossible for Jesus to be a human being. Because matter, the body, is evil. It's impossible for Jesus to be God in flesh because the body is evil. Matter is evil. Is evil. So Gnosti- the Gnostics denied both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Now there were two groups of Gnostics, and, and please hang with me just for about two more minutes. There were two groups of Gnostics. Uh, one said that the divine Jesus joined the human Jesus at baptism and left before he died on the cross. That the way that they explained Jesus was this that there was a man, a human named Jesus. And at his baptism, a dove came down. Remember that? I mean, that's biblical. Remember? The dove came down. They said, that's when the divine Jesus came on, the human Jesus. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the Gnostics said, that's when the divine Jesus left the human Jesus. All right? It's crazy, isn't it? Okay, so that's one of them. My favorite one is the next one. The second group of Gnostics said... He wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human, kind of like a hologram. Have you ever seen a hologram? Have you ever? Uh, there was a hologram of Michael Jackson not long ago on one of the the, the uh, TV shows, and he was singing. Now it looked just real, just like he was there, and it looked real. But the Gnostic said, "You know what? He, he he's not really human. He he's not real. He just appeared to be real." And my favorite quote is this: They would say. When he walked in the sand, he never left a footprint. He just appeared to be real. I mean, have you ever noticed? Did you ever see any footprints? He just appeared to be real. Now, like any good pastor, John couldn't stand by while the gospel was assaulted by these satanic lies of false teachers. The very existence of Christian faith was at stake because there was this blending of the gospel with this heresy. And that's why John began his letter like he did. Thank you for being patient. Look at the text with me. Here's why John began his letter this way. First John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy, or some translations say your joy complete. John begins his letter by essentially saying, I want you to know something. Jesus is real. Would you say that out loud with me? Just three words. Jesus is real. John says in the first four verses, as he's writing to Christians who are being misled by the Gnostics, who denied the humanity of Jesus, some who said, oh, he just looked human, and others who said, no, he, could, he was just divine for a little while, and then the divinity left him. John wrote to these people who are being misled by false teachers, and he said, essentially, this, you need to know something, and you need to make sure you get this Right. Jesus is real. He has a pastor's heart, and so he wants to refute the false teachers, and he wants to reassure the genuine believers. So he shows them and he shows us why you and I can and should believe that Jesus is real. Now let's just work our way through these verses. He says three important things in these verses. He says, first of all, he wasn't divine for a little while. He wasn't divine for a little while. John addresses, re, remember the first one of the, the ideas behind Gnosticism? Is that, that he was divine for a little while. He was divine when? When the Holy Spirit descended on, on him like a dove. And then he was, he was divine for three years and then the, then the Spirit left him at his death. Now I'm not saying that happened, I'm saying that's what the Gnostics believed. That was the heresy. John says no, he wasn't divine for a little while. Listen to the first part of verse 1. That which was from the beginning. John is going to talk about Jesus, and he said, I want to tell you something. He wasn't divine for a little while. He was from the beginning. He is eternal. With a simple opening statement, John establishes that the gospel message is unchanging and is unchangeable. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not change the gospel message. You do not conform the gospel message. Nor does our Savior change or conform. Jesus Christ is real. He is the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God and our eternal Savior. He's real. He's unchanging. So John says, no, you you know, you know those people who believe that He was only divine for a little while? That's heresy. He was from the beginning. Then the second thing that John says is this. He didn't just seem to be human either. John goes, explains it this way. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands has touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is an eyewitness account about Jesus And John listed four ways that he had encountered Jesus with his senses. He said, first of all, we have heard the Lord speak. That meant that he had heard they had heard him teach his parables. John had heard him preach sermons. He had been there in private conversations. John said, I'll tell you something. He didn't just seem to be human. I heard him speak. I was with him. And not only that, John says, and we have seen him, and he says, with our eyes. In other words, we didn't see just the vision. We didn't just see some kind of a spiritual being. We saw him with our eyes. This was not some kind of spiritual vision. And then John says, and we looked on him. We looked at him. And that word means to gaze at somebody and study them. Have you ever had anybody just kind of look at you and watch you closely? That's the word. John says, we didn't just look at him temporarily, we studied him, we watched him for three years. We lived with him, and we watched him, and we studied him as he taught, and as he walked, and everything he did, we were watching and we were studying him. And then John says, and by the way, those for those of you who say that he was, just seemed human, not only did we hear him, and not only did we see him and study him, but also, by the way, we touched him. He wasn't a hologram. He didn't just appear to be human. John was saying, watch this, look at this church. John was saying, my hand touched his hand. This is a first-hand experience. First-hand encounter. John says, my hand touched his hand. It's the same word that Jesus used in, in Luke 24 when he said, touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. John says, when you, I, I, I've been there. I want to give you a, I, I a first-person report. I've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This was not a second-hand religious experience that John is writing about. He's not writing about something that he read in a book. John knew Jesus face to face, and he was perhaps the last apostle living who could give this testimony. The last great voice that could give first-hand information about Jesus. And here's what John says. I, I love the way he says it in a picturesque language, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we can proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, everything I'm about to tell you in this book, I know firsthand. Everything I'm about to tell you about our Lord and Savior, John would say, I've been there. I knew Him. I touched Him. He knew Jesus was not a phantom. He was not a vision. He was not a make-believe character. He knew that Jesus was absolutely real. Question, question. Do you know Jesus is absolutely real? Are you convinced that Jesus is absolutely real? The third thing John says in the second and third verses is this. He said, I'm telling you this so that you can experience what I've experienced. Uh, The reason I'm writing this letter to you is so that you can experience what I've experienced. Look how he says it in verse 2 and 3. The life appeared... We have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that, key phrase, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Two times in this one verse John uses the word appeared. Look in verse 2 church, look in verse 2, two times he uses the word appeared. It's translated revealed in some translations. The word manifest in other translations. Look at it again in verse 2. The life appeared. It was revealed. It was manifested. Talk about the life of Jesus. We have seen it and testified to it. We've proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared, manifested, revealed to us. I want to ask you a question. If you were God... How would you reveal yourself to the world? What would be the best way to do that? Well, God revealed Himself to creation uh, by creation, according to Romans chapter 1. That's one of the ways that God revealed Himself. He revealed Himself to creation by creation. I was up early this morning, watched the sun coming up over the trees, and I thought, man, it's just beautiful. And I was talking to the Lord, it's like, man, you've done this before too, haven't you? It's like, how could anybody not believe in God? when they say that, right? God has revealed himself to creation by creation, but creation alone could never tell us the true story, the whole story of God's love. God also revealed himself more fully in, in his word, the Bible. That's another way that God revealed himself. He revealed himself in the Bible. We know a lot of things about God because of what we read in God's word. But God's final and God's most complete revelation of who he is was in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the word means when it says He appeared. He was revealed. He was manifested. Jesus, in fact, said in John 14, 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Jesus is given a very special name in this this, uh, first few verses. What's the name given to Jesus in verse 1, class? Look in verse 1 and tell me the name given to Jesus. Word of life. Now, why in the world would Jesus have that name, the Word of Life? It's because Christ is to us what our words are to others. Our words reveal to others just what we think and what we feel. How in the world would you know what was in my heart unless I used words to express that to you? You wouldn't know. How in the world would you know what was on my mind unless I used words to reveal that to you? You would not know. How in the world would we know what was on God's heart and on God's mind unless He revealed it to us? We wouldn't know. And the way that God has revealed it to us is through Jesus Christ. God says, I want to show you how to live a life. I want to show you the kind of life I want you to live. And He showed us Jesus. I want to show you what holiness is like. And He showed us Jesus I want to show you what a sacrifice is. And he showed us Jesus. God revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. He's the living means of communication between God and man. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I can never have an authentic relationship with God until we decide once and for all and finally settle it, Jesus is real and he alone is my Savior. In fact, I want you to run to the end of the book. Chapter 5, and let's see how John closes this book. John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Key verse, key verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Why don't people believe in Jesus? There's three reasons. There's there's probably more than three, but there's three big reasons. People say it's irrational, He's intolerant, and He's irrelevant. It's irrational, He's intolerant, and he's irrelevant. First of all, they say he Jesus Christianity is irrational. The thought of Jesus the son of God, savior of the world, it's irrational. Ladies and gentlemen, we have first-hand testimonies about who Jesus is and what Jesus did first-hand testimonies this is not second-hand experience we have first-hand testimonies about jesus and i want you to run to revelation and and this will be the last scripture revelation chapter one because remember who wrote the book of revelation anybody remember who wrote the book of revelation john did in revelation chapter one look what he wrote in verse nine I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, most of the martyrs died a martyr's death because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Most of them most of the apostles died a martyr's death. And I, I say to you today, they would not have died for a lie. John would not have been put on the Isle of Patmos, exiled to the Isle of Patmos for a lie. It is irrational? No. We have first-hand account of who Jesus is. And men gave their lives to tell that story of that Jesus is real. Some people say, well, it's, he's intolerant. Jesus is intolerant. People don't like the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. There are lots of other religions in the world. I will tell you something. You're right. There are lots of other religions in the world. But there is only one person who claimed to be the Son of God and who died for our sins and then got up out of the grave. And this is just my conviction. If he can predict his death, then get up out of the grave. I'm following him. I'm believing him. I'm going after him. And by the way, it's not intolerant to say that there is a way to God and anyone can have that experience. That's not intolerant. That's good news. Others don't accept Jesus because they say He's irrelevant. You know, things are constantly changing. Life is changing. The whole concept of Jesus is just irrelevant in today's secular society. Let me tell you something. Things are changing, but what doesn't change is truth. Jude calls it the faith once delivered to the saints, once for all delivered to the saints. You see, if something was true 10,000 years ago, it'll be true 10,000 years from now. Truth does not change. Listen, let me put it to you this way. I was born in Anderson, South Carolina. That is an undeniable truth. I was born there. That was true 54 years ago. It's true today. It'll be true 200 years from now. It'll be true 2,000 years from now because it is truth. Truth does not change. The world may be changing, but truth does not change. Jesus is not irrelevant. Jesus was the Savior 2,000 years ago, and He is the Savior today. He's the only one who can save you. Now, I'm about to go over a little bit here, so y'all just going to be patient with me, right? Amen? You going to be patient with me? All right, it's just going to be a couple of minutes. That step represents... Some of you today. Now just try to focus on me. That step represents some of you. Because somewhere along the way, uh, for some of you, you're, maybe those of you watching over in the Life Center, somewhere along the way, your mom and your dad took you to some church and they baptized you. They had you baptized as an infant. And they were doing the best that they knew how. They were doing the best that they thought they could do. And what they were doing was, they were, they were trying as best as they could to, to, take, to get you to God. And so they baptized you as an infant. And that was their, that was their attempt to get you to God. Uh, for some of you, it was, it was not infant baptism. For some of you, you just grew up, maybe you never grew up in a church. But you decided to give church a try. And that, that was your attempt. To get to God, you you decided to give church a try. And That's where some of you are right now. That's the reason you're here. That's the reason you're watching it over in the Life Center. You decided to give church a try, and that's your attempt to get to God. Some of you it was not that you decided to give church a try, but you know you were just lonely and you were just aching inside, and your life was falling apart. Your marriage is kind of crumbling, and things are not going well at all. And and one day you one day you picked up a Bible you decided to start reading you did, You're not sure where to read, but you've been trying to read it here lately. And that's your step, trying to get to God. That's a good step, by the way. I'd encourage you to keep reading your Bible. It's a step, isn't it? Just trying to get to God. Some of you, the reason you came was to Mount Airy. Because you've tried this church and this denomination and this church and that denomination. And, and, and you, you finally decided, you know what, I'm going to try the Baptist way. See what the Baptists are like. And we're glad that you're here. And we're glad that you've taken that step. And it's your step, it's your attempt to get to God. Then a lot of you, a lot of you have probably taken this step. You've determined that you're empty inside. You've determined that your heart's just not right. And, and you thought about it one day and you realized, you know, God is good. There's no denying that. God is good. And so you thought, well, if God's good, then, then I need to be good. And so you decided to try to live a better life. I need to be good. I need to stop doing this and I need to start doing that. And I need to be good. And that's your attempt, that's your step to God. 1 John chapter 5 makes it so clear. Listen to what he says. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is just a step to God. These are steps to God. You're trying to get to God. You will never get there until you determine Jesus Christ is real and I want Him to be my real Savior. I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus to be my Savior. And I claim it today by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible says it's by faith. It's by faith. Would you bow your head with me right now? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation and. or a song over in the Life Center, and we, we're going to invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Put your faith in Him and in Him alone. The song is so right, the gospel changes everything. Jesus can change your life and change your heart. I pray you put your faith in Him today. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that even though we try to take steps toward you, you took the greatest step when Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us took the greatest step when Jesus stepped into our world so that we could, by faith, experience you. And I pray, Lord God, that today, somebody would take that step of faith, that step that they've not yet taken. They've taken the steps of church membership or baptism or trying the Baptist way or trying to live a good life. May they take the step of faith today, accepting and claiming Jesus and Him alone as Savior. In his name I pray, amen.